You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. Are you uh, are you hosting any podcasts these days, actually? Because I know you were doing a bunch of segments and stuff for a while. You turned into a media guy. Are you done with that right now? Uh, well, okay. So the ones that I did for Spark Race were for their platform. It wasn't something I had chosen to do. They asked... They came to me and asked me to do it. So I said, yeah, man, I mean, I'll, I'll do it. And so I had never, I have thought about doing a podcast, but I've never gone any further than actually thinking about it. And it's just for me, I feel like that day will come. But like most things in my life, it has to be about timing. And one day I will wake up like I have had happen in my life for many things that are important to me. And I'll just know that day is the day. But so far... I just haven't taken it any further than that. I'm just thinking of a guy that's so so good with like media. And if anybody lives and breathes this shit, it's you, right? So I would say you have a pretty you have a pretty thorough understanding of this all. So I was just curious if if that was a, a thought of yours. You know, part of it also is the fact that at times I feel like I've spread so thin with all the things I love to do. A lot of people only know me from racing, but I'm involved in so much shit behind the scenes that if I can't do it legit and do it 100% at a a level that I am willing to put my name on, I won't do it. And so at this stage, it's it's a lot about I need to investigate what the best setup is. And I'm not the kind of guy, if I were to do it, that would want to do something janky. I'd get the best tricorder. I'd get the best earphones i'd get the whatever and i just have been so busy that it's like i don't have the time to investigate what that would actually take that makes sense i think it'll happen you're either all in or all out that's how it works yeah i don't fuck around man i'm not if i'm not gonna be all in i'm not gonna do it kevin we're uh i don't believe you listen to the podcast you probably don't know like our format necessarily no so we're gonna go back in time with you because you're one of the guys I want to start with the present day and then we're going to go back in time is what I'm getting at. Like you're one of the guys that's still like a bit of a mystery to me in the sense like, (laughs) well, in a sense, like how did this guy become this guy? Right? Like how is Kevin Gelati become Kevin Gelati? Because, you know, like when I first started this sport in 2016, you know, we all go to social media and we all look for those who have been doing this and to try to understand to get better And even then you were already like, sort of like, oh, I'm going to follow this guy because this guy is like living this shit. Right. (laughs) And so I have a lot of curiosities about all of that, but like what I'm like a guy like you, that is all in on something like this. And what, how old are you, Kevin? Uh, I turned 51 in January. 51. You don't see a lot of people in their fifties selling out in a good way, all in on something and just like owning it. Right. I mean, Bracken, can you think of anybody you know, that isn't in their younger years that are all in on stuff. I mean, there are some guys and girls training all in and some who are social media all in and some who are Spartan all in. But Kevin is, I, I, I think that every waking moment of his life seems to be all in and you don't find that <laughs> at any age, really. So 
When we first started this podcast, we knew we wanted to start with the big hitters. We knew we needed to start with some name recognition, but our real goal, so you had to have Hunter, you had to have the Atkins family, but our real goal was not to retread what had been already tread upon. It was to introduce stories and training knowledge to the OCR community. And so you were one of three masters slash age group athletes, which they tend to be the same thing these days since the masters athletes are the best age group athletes, (laughs) but that we wanted to get the story because I think that you are the most polarizing age group athlete (laughs) in the world. (laughs) And and I'm not telling you anything new. You understand that people are kind of the same way you live life, all in or all out. People either love you or they're rubbed the wrong way by you. (laughs) And Kirk has this phrase that he didn't make up, but that I heard first from him. And it's, I do not like that man. I must get to know him. Oh, that's interesting. It's something that I really valued. And I think that there's a lot of people who may hesitate to click on the episode because you have posted something or you have stood for something that they haven't in the past. And I think that this is their chance to find out who you are and why. Yeah, you know, so people tell me this. I, You guys, I've been hearing shit like this since I was a little kid. Like, really. This is that, that concept of being polarizing is not something I strive for. It's not something I wake up to try to do. It's not something that's an agenda of mine. It's just what I am. And I feel like in this uh, avenue you're talking about, Typically, the people that are turned off by me, I find it's because of some random, fairly minor, irrelevant piece of information that that put them down the path of having a problem with me, but they don't really know me. And the people that have really gotten to know me, I think, find out something very different than the little snippets you see here and there or the small pieces of writing that don't have all the context behind them or whatnot. And so I find some of those people, you might be able to turn around if you actually just get to talk and interact with them and they'll find out you're not the monster. They try to act like you are. It's just a bunch of nonsense that people get. They they make their predeterminations because of something that, that does not define you but it's just a piece of something that maybe you've said or they've heard or mm-hmm. that you, they've read. Yeah. Well, you can, you know, you can, you can agree with somebody 19 times out of 20. Right. But if there's just one, if there's just one out of 20, that seems to be the one that people will grab onto, you know, intentionally. Yeah, but I'll tell you, but, but let me tell you my opinion on that, man. To me, that's a person who doesn't have a proper perspective on life because if you can hear one thing or take one thing a person says, and distill down what you think they are, that's a weak mindset. Because if it's that simple to deter you, then we probably wouldn't be friends anyway. Because if whatever it is that you tripped over that I might have said without all of the context or the backstory makes you so upset that you dislike me, it wouldn't matter to me anyway, because we're never gonna go any further than that. I'm already gonna understand your your thin skinness or your level of what you can tolerate from just that simple understanding of but you want to know what something you want to know something funny about that piece right there that is exactly the kind of shit that people will freak out about just that one yeah. simple explanation of my mindset is going to set somebody off on some direction like this fucking guy man. i i'll count myself in the group that met you through social media first and wasn't sure 
that I liked you. Yeah. I I saw I saw your first couple posts and I thought that this guy <laughs> is just not your first couple, the first couple I saw of yours. And I thought this guy is just putting stuff out there that he's just like just searching for likes or he's trying to ruffle feathers or whatever. And the first time I met you, you probably don't remember, but it was in Monterey before a race. I was teaching an obstacle specialist course and you walked up the road in Monterey. I believe it was Monterey carrying your bow case. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I've never yeah. talked to you. I've, I, I've seen six of your posts maybe. And I have a half, not even a half of a half formed opinion about, I think that you're portraying something that's probably not who you are. And you walked up with this big grin. And you said, Hey, do you know where the spear throw is? I said, I think it's up here. He said, you think they're okay if I, sh if I need <laughs> to shoot, you know, if, if I, if I get some shots. So what? He said, do you, do you think it's okay? Like, do you think I can, I can shoot at the targets for a bit? I'm, I think I can get up here and do it. And in that moment, I realized you are just what you say you are. You are so <laughs> passionate, so passionate about the opportunity. That I think I can get out here and I think I can put a few arrows down range. And that would just be the coolest thing I could imagine in this moment. And I said, I don't know, man. I'm like, this is a, this is public land, but it's Spartan doesn't own it. Like good, good luck maybe, but like, I wouldn't let them see you. And you just like took off down the road so happy. And I realized, okay, I had no idea. This guy is not pretending to be something. He just loves every aspect of what his life is. And from that day forward, then we met a few times in person, talked training. Yeah. And I realized, okay, I'm glad I got to know him a bit. And yeah. my hope is today that other people get that sense of your journey is not a, it's not a show. Okay, so let me tell you a couple things about that day that, that people don't know that happened. Okay. <laughs> so the first thing that happened is I did show up at the targets. I was able to put some arrows down range into those straw bales. I did post the video. And then no sooner than an hour later, I got a phone call and was being reprimanded by the Spartan staff, who I won't name, asking me to please take down that video. Um, Which is fair. Yeah, I mean, I can understand. I could, I could understand their concern, which is why I was willing to take it down. Because I'm not a fucking asshole who's just not going to be able to stand back and look at the perspective and say, okay, you know what, man? I don't like being asked to do things I don't want to do, but I understand the work. I understand the request, and I understand that I have a shirt on my back that has their name and their information. So I got it, but okay, so that's one piece of information that most people don't know. Second piece of information is, I put an arrow through a fucking $800 phone that day by accident. <laughs> is that the one where you tried to film it coming in? He's showing us an arrow. What is, is that arrow through your cell phone? That arrow is through the cell phone. This is what happened that day. This is, a carbon fiber arrow stuck through a Galaxy S8. Was your accuracy worth the phone loss? No, no, no. Because <laughs> you know what I had to do? You got his own cell phone with an arrow. <laughs> then it was panic mode. Then it had to rush into town, throw down cash, buy a brand new phone. No BS. Like there's, there was no time to – because, you know, we you have to have your phone to survive really these days. It's kind of a crazy situation, but it's true. So, no, man, I mean, I, I didn't even get to post a damn video, and then I lost an $800 phone, and I got in trouble for it all. But to, to be fair, it was legal. 
I broke no laws. I did nothing wrong. So ultimately, in my mind, it's like I looked at the backstop. I know what I'm doing. Like, okay, so those are the two pieces of backstory I wanted to, to add just because you brought that up. I'm just impressed. You got great ac- you got great accuracy, Kevin. And as a fellow archer, my hat's off to you, brother. <laughs> Too bad it wasn't the shot I was looking for. I would say he missed his target. Did you hit your target? Were you aiming for the cell phone or just above it? Well, hell no. Hell no. I mean, I don't want to make content bad enough to throw $800 away. I'm not, I mean, I'm going to knucklehead. <laughs> but, Bracken, let me tell you something here that you raised that, that is a point I would love to clear up for anybody who thinks otherwise, okay? You guys both know me. You guys have both met me. You guys have hung out with me. There is not, there is nothing in my life that I do that is bullshit. I am not a character. You don't ever see me weird voices. I don't dress up in bizarre costumes. I don't try to be something I'm not. This is exactly what I live. And if anybody who thinks otherwise spends any time around me, or if you can't see that on social media, because if this was some kind of weird fucking act, You can't maintain an act like this for years and years and years. I'm at a point in my life that I truly do not give a shit whether people like me or not. That's not important to me. I believe in what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. I have confidence in myself. Any day of the week, I would rather have somebody say what one of you guys said earlier. That is, hey man, I don't fucking like that guy. He rubs me the wrong way. But shit, man, the dude's for real. He really does work. He really does put in the effort. I will take that any day of the week over somebody, people, you know, quote unquote, liking me. That's not my agenda and it's not my goal. This is really what I am. And anybody who's known me for a period of time, an ex-wife, a girlfriend, all of my close friends, they'll tell you, like, this is, there's, this is how I am 24-7. It's not a joke and it's not an act. Once people know you, I think... I think we like, I understand that obviously Bracken. I think you now understand that I had somebody reach out the other day. Are you, are you friends with Rob Thorson? Yeah. Kevin, have you trained with him? And yeah. stuff? You know him pretty well. I know him. Pre- I know him and his brother. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. He, he had reached out um, earlier this week and I think you had posted about being on the podcast and he, and he, and he sent me a message that he didn't know would be endearing, but he said, when are you going to upload the podcast on Friday? Because I really want to listen to it and I want to make sure I can download it before I get on my flight. And then I told him Bracken's oh. slow with this stuff and you're probably not going to get it downloaded in time. But the point being is that is I thought that you and Rob knew each other pretty well. And if a guy that knows you pretty well and has spent time with you pretty well is so excited to hear you speak on the podcast that he wants to download it to get on his plane so he has something to listen to, that's a guy that knows you. And that's a testament to say like, Hey, if people actually get to know you, they're probably going to like you so much so that they want to make sure the episode's out in time to download. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. And listen, I do know him. I know him well. I've stayed with him and his family at his house. I have yeah. hung out with him and his brother at races. So they're good. That's a good family. They're good dudes. They are. They're good people. Salt of the earth people without a doubt. Um, I did not know he reached out with that. That's very cool. But you see, that's the kind of stuff right there that, literally will make my day for the rest of the day. Just that little piece of information is enough fuel for me to act on for the rest of the day to think that in some way, somebody out there has put the bullshit aside, whatever it is they like or don't like about it, 
and can have perspective and prag, you know, a pragmatic view enough to stand back and go, okay, I see something valuable in what this person has to say enough so that I may not like them, but I want to hear what they have to say. And so that's the angle that is, that I'm looking for when I post this stuff. It's not to wow people. Listen, man, I was doing this shit before the internet existed. Okay. <laughs> to, to people don't understand that like the stuff you see me do, this is nothing new in my life, man. Before the internet, before great cameras, before we could all upload it, I've been working out in my garage. I've been traveling around the world doing this stuff, and I can verify it, prove it all. Like, I'm going to do this, whether there's a media for me to show it to people or not. I don't care either way. But what I found out was, unexpectedly, there are people that are enjoying it and getting a positive benefit from it. So it's motivating them to be active or to participate in something or get out there. And that's the only reason I'm here. I'm racing and I'm training whether there's internet or video or not. It, it, it's of no consequence to me. It just works out that it's something I know how to do. So I put it out there. But it's I don't do it for my own excitement or I don't give a shit if people pat me on the back. I just want somebody to see it and go, this guy's 51 and he's grinding. Shit, I got to get out there. I, I need to change my life. And I get those messages and I know that that's happening out there. That's why I continue to post this stuff. Yeah, and we appreciate that. So the last few episodes, we have broke our traditional mold of people's backstory. They started to get a little redundant. And then each of the last three or four episodes, we've prefaced with, this is a backstory that's not like anyone else's in this sport. You know, we had our last one was Stephen Menya, who was born and raised in a impoverished village in Ethiopia. Prior to that, it was um, Carol, who came up at the time of um, Title IX. You know, people that went through different experiences. This continues that trend. No matter what you share today, it's not a backstory that's shared by very many people in this. And and this is kind of the moment I've been waiting to jump into, which is take us back to the beginning of KG, the athlete <laughs> and the person. You know, some people grew up running cross country. Some grew up doing multi-sports. What was your initial introduction to that person you've become today? Okay. So I, you know, I grew up, I was born in the seventies and in the seventies, no internet, you know, no real media. You had to go to the library to get books. You had to, you know, it's just a very different time. Kids could play outside all the time. I grew up in a neighborhood in Iowa. I was born in Iowa, Des Moines, Iowa born and raised in Iowa, and I went to the University of Iowa, consequently, for my undergrad, San Diego State, for my master's degree. And um, so we grew up, I grew up in a neighborhood that had a ton of kids. We probably had 12 kids all in the same age. It was fucking epic. You talk about TV tag, you talk about capture the flag. I mean, we were playing games until 9 o'clock at night. I lived in the 70s when you got in trouble for wanting to stay out late and play in the dark, that's what you got in trouble for. We would get yelled at for wanting to stay outside and be active. Think about that these days. It, it, it's just something that doesn't exist anymore, it seems like. So anyway, um, I've always been active. I played baseball. I played soccer. I really thought that when I went to the University of Iowa, I was going to try out for their soccer team. That was my goal. 
so I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm fast forwarding to the to the to essentially college because that's when things really took a, a dramatic change in my life, and it's gonna tell you how I got to where I'm at. But just understand, I've always been active. I've always my brother, my we've always been into sports. Soccer was what I was very very good at. It was my background. I played it competitively for years. And I really did think that's where I was going to go. But then when I got to the University of Iowa is when I really found out I'm simply not a team player. That's just a fact. I'm not interested in working my ass off to have somebody else take the accolades for the good days, nor am I willing to um, have the shitty days be on anybody's shoulders but my own. So that's when I found out, you know what, Kevin, you're just not a team player guy. So you just need to forget about soccer because – I just can't tolerate the politics and bullshit nonsense. So in uh, college, mountain biking came around. I was there when mountain biking really hit the scene. So I got my first mountain bike. And uh, uh, understand, before then, I had the one thing that has been most consistent in my life since I was a little boy is bikes. BMX bikes, I used to build them, race them, uh, make parts list before I could afford to buy them and all the parts I would want them. I was asking for tools and whatnot as a kid to build bikes. So that's always been my backstory. So when I got into college and mountain biking hit the scene, I got my first mountain bike. My grandpa bought my first mountain bike as kind of a graduation present from high school. So the next thing you know, I'm biking all around the University of Iowa campus. And this is in the 80s. And um, that turned into road bikes and so then I had a group of friends, and we used to mountain bike, and then we got into mountain bike racing. So essentially in college, uh, I really took on this desire to be active, but it really started with mountain bike racing. I want to pick that up in a second, but I want to just go back just a hair before we pick it up. I want to know, I want to know what kind of kid you were, Kevin. Were you, were you a, a young kid? Were you a kid that was the high energy, go, go, go all day, wear holes in the knees of your jeans and kind of kid? And, and what, what kind of upbringing, like what kind of family, your parents and all that? I want to know that stuff. Yeah. So I come essentially from like a hardcore Italian-American uh, family. My grandfather um, started a construction business and my great-grandfather. And so I came from that hardcore work ethic to where when we were little kids, I spent my summers working hard labor construction. I didn't get to go have all the fun some of my friends did. I was literally in sewers, cleaning out shit, shoveling concrete, digging trenches throughout the entire summer because that was the expectation of my family. At what age? Like how young did you start doing that? 14, 15, maybe slightly earlier. And then all through college that progressed to where while I was in college, I was coming home and working for the summer while my friends were out having a great time. I was working five in the morning till five o'clock at night. To answer your actual question, I was the guy, I was the kid that showed up in the emergency room so many times. At one point, I got taken into another room and asked by the doctors if I was being abused because me and my brother would get into so much shit as kids in the 70s, breaking arms, breaking legs, getting stitches royally getting hurt that we went to the emergency room so many times they thought our parents were doing something because we were always active we were always doing shit we were always getting into mischief 
But in the 70s and 80s, man, there was nothing else to do but play outside. So it was 24-7 getting after it. So, yes, the kid, the guy that I am today is the kid I was back then. I was the black sheep of the family. I was always in trouble. I was voted most likely to go nowhere in high school. <laughs> what do you mean you're always in trouble? Were we, like, getting in fights? Or were we, like, stealing Slim Jims from the gas station? Or were we just, like, breaking windows? Like, what were we doing, Kevin? Yeah, dude. I was stealing shit. I was breaking into, we were breaking into garages. Uh, we were throwing acorns and rocks and snowballs at cars. So it was stuff like that. It was uh, minor stuff, you know, just, well, you know, minor in terms of back then when you got busted stealing something from the grocery store, people would just take you home, man. They'd give you some shit. And dude, I had times when the cops were called on me. My mom took me back to a grocery store one time because I stole something as a little kid and they scared the fuck out of me and I never did it again. But back then it was just, you know, they read you the ride act and that was the end of the story. But yeah, man, I mean, I never hurt anybody, but it was like, yeah, man, we caused problems. No doubt. We caused problems. I'm happy with that answer. I just wanted to be clued in. My guess is it was your excessive energy that just could, you couldn't help yourself, but just fuck with stuff. That's what my guess is. Yeah. The, I mean, there's no, there's no doubt about it that that plays a role, you know, and also probably the times just, there was a lot more freedom then. I mean, we could roam the neighborhoods, we could roam the streets as kids and nobody really worried about getting jacked by a fucking weirdo. And we didn't worry about, you just didn't worry about that kind of stuff. So life just seemed to be freer and, and, and we just, we took advantage of it, man. So it was constantly out and about and, Inevitably, that would mean like falling off stuff and, and getting hurt and having to go to the emergency room. I mean, so it's like, it's shit like that throughout my whole like childhood. That was, that was every day, typical thing. So how did you, how did your parents treat you with that? Were they live and let live or were they authoritarian, bring the hammer down? Was there, was there family strife because of your black sheepness? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with, with much embarrassment, I can tell you, I've actually physically fought my father. Uh, nothing I'm proud of, but yeah, man. I mean, I, I was the kid that was like, I got kicked out of the house. I would get in trouble. I'd be the guy that was in um, in school. I'd have all kinds of attention. I was always into mischief. Um, and I, I was the the 70s or 80s shows or movies you see about rebellion, drugs, getting into trouble, running away from home, sneaking out. I literally lived that one and my mom and i have a very special very cool relationship where she's always been kind of the live and let live uh person in our household my parents were divorced and i was young and my father uh, was fucking hardcore he was hardcore man and my grandfather was the same way it was constantly work ethic it was constantly nothing's going to be given to you i had to start when i worked construction as a young kid which would have been illegal by now because OSHA and whatnot would never allow them to. If you saw the stuff, I was a heavy equipment operator for probably five years in construction. There's very few pieces of equipment I couldn't run today. I learned to do that kind of stuff when I shouldn't have been allowed to because it was so young. But it was a work ethic of you're going to get up at 5 a.m., you're going to go do construction, you're going to start at the bottom of the barrel, you're going to be the guy my son will never get an extra work or an extra leg up in this business just because you're my son. 
That shit didn't fly with my dad. I started from the bottom of the barrel, and I had to work my way up. We got no gifts in my family that way. There was no, yeah, man, we're just going to let you jump over all of these and go right to equipment operator. Nah, man, it was the dirty, nastiest concrete. I've laid more forms. I've poured more concrete. I've built curb and gutter. I've learned how to work with machinery. I've done mechanics, all of that stuff. But it came from that mindset, the classic Italian-American work ethic. And I was so hateful of it and so spiteful of it then. And I'm so fucking grateful now for it. I can't even tell you. Sometimes I just tell my dad that now when we have phone calls. I will just tell him, dad, I realize the problem child and the black sheep that I was then, but I can tell you, I'm where I'm at today. I have what I have because you instilled that work ethic. You and my grandfather, I was very close to my grandfather. I dedicated my thesis in grad school to my grandfather. That guy is was the most badass human being I've ever known. Were they military men? Were they hard men or just hard on behavior? Hard on behavior, hard on work ethic, hard on appreciating the dollar, hard on appreciating earning everything you get, not being given things. I didn't get things when I was a kid. I had to earn them. That's how it worked. We would make, let me give an example. The first mountain bike I ever bought on my own was a Klein attitude that I saw one time in the 90s when I was in college. I came home. I had to take a loan from my dad who wrote the loan papers and who made me pay him back monthly, which included a document every month, a receipt, to pay him back for the money I borrowed to buy my bike. You know, that's just stuff, you don't see that kind of stuff anymore. I mean, it's like legitimately a contract with my father, but what that was at the time that I didn't understand, that was my dad just being an asshole, but it wasn't. It was my dad teaching me the understanding of the value of the dollar of follow through, of commitment, of, of earning the things that you get. Just, just assume people are going to give you shit. So those little life lessons of which there are dozens of them, you guys, that's indicative of how I, of also how I grew up. You had that and you went off to grad school in San Diego. Was that getting away from that? Had you come to grips with enjoying what they had or appreciating it yet? Or were you escaping Iowa out to California? To answer that question, I need to give you the most important piece of this backstory that will explain why I'm back. You just, you jumped ahead over something that happened that will explain that if you want me, if you want me to get into that now, because it's, it's the most critical piece in my opinion. Do it to this whole story about who I am and how people have come to know me now. And it's a nutty story. Let's hear it. Okay. So at the University of Iowa, my first year is almost a blur. I'm in college at a major university, the University of Iowa. Come on, man. It's the Hawkeyes. Like, shit. And in the 80s, it was all about getting fucked up, getting drunk, maybe going to class, Maybe not. Barely getting by. I got put on academic probation. I was taken in front of the dean and scolded because I wasn't meeting the grades to be able to stay in the dorm that I got in called the Mayflower. I was on a fucking disaster route, man. It was really... The, the movies today that you see of frat parties, brother, they are fucking for real. 
and the 80s and 90s movies of those frat parties, 100% legit. The debauchery, the, the craziness, it was real. I was there. I lived it. I was going down that path. And stoner buddy of mine, we called him Shaggy, bet me that I couldn't complete a duathlon. And this guy, not only was he was a stoner, but he was an athlete, legit cross-country runner. And he bet me that I couldn't do this duathlon. I'm like, fuck, dude. Okay, I'll take that bet. So I show up to this duathlon with zero training, a mountain bike, with slick tires, a camelback. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. Um, a world-famous triathlete who was a friend of mine who went on to be a two-time Ironman, which very few people have. His name is Tim DeBoom. Oh, Ironman champ. Yeah, we're talking Ironman back-to-back world champion. Tim DeBoom, check it out. One of the few people that's gone back-to-back with Hawaii Ironman. He and his brothers, we also all came from the University of Iowa. He ended up winning the triathlon that day. I did the duathlon. It was a disaster in the making because I had no idea what I was doing. But here's what happened. In one singular day, my life changed. Because I knew instantly in that moment, if I put my mind to it, I could do this. I could be good at this. I knew it. I don't know how I knew it. I don't know why I knew it. I had no business being at that race. I didn't have the right equipment. I didn't have the right gear. I had no training. I had no idea. I Something inside told me, man, I knew. It was that day that everything changed because it was soon after that. And remember, I'm partying. I'm eating like shit. I'm staying up late. I'm doing mad drugs. That day, I set a date in the future just randomly that I would stop all drugs, I would stop drinking, and I would stop eating meat and become a vegetarian because I felt like that if you wanted to be a great athlete, you couldn't eat meat. Don't ask me how I came to that conclusion. Just that is what it is. It happened. So that day in the future, I literally woke up. And since that day, this is going on 30 plus years now. I've never had a drink of alcohol. I stopped everything like I said I would. And I've been a vegetarian and never cheated three decades later now. That was cold turkey start. And from that day on in college, which would have been when right when I became a sophomore, I went all in. I Next thing I know, I'm trying to race 5Ks. I'm trying to race 10Ks. The first experience I have with actually going out to run in, was in college to actually go out for a run, like to, the understanding of what it would take to be a runner. You guys, I had no clue. I went and bought a pair of piece of shit New Balance. I got so amped on running that I have a memory of getting up after midnight one night in college when it started to snow to go for a run at like one in the morning because I was so amped that I was running and I was so amped that it was snowing outside. And at that point, running a mile was a big deal to me. I was like, fuck yeah, man, I just ran a mile. Because we're not talking about sports where you're sprinting up and down like soccer. We're talking about actually trying to become dedicated to running. I, I want to slow this down a second, actually, because we've just pivoted on one duathlon has in a day leads to you picking a date and going completely sober and not eating animal products. I'm not happy with the why yet. Like, what <laughs> what was it about? Like, one 
let's just call it trivial duathlon. Like if you had to describe what you felt, because a lot of people do, we do hear that story. Like I ran my first race and suddenly I knew this is what I wanted to focus on. And they had no idea that was going to be part of their life. But like, what about it was so profound? Like a guy that was just living the left field life. Like what, like how was that? I, I'm just trying to dissect why that was so impactful. Yeah. You know, the best I can tell you is uh, it's a couple of things. First, I saw it as an opportunity to prove a lot of the world wrong, including family members, including people that have written me off, that I could be good at something and I could do something. And it was at the same time that hair on the neck feeling of people calling your bib number, going through a finish line, the pure suffering that it took for me to actually get that day complete. It took everything I had as a human being to not stop. And once I realized that that was in me, it was at that moment that I realized there was, there was a whole nother door that I hadn't even opened in my mind that I could go down. And so I think it was just this thing of like, I can have a focus. I could be good at this. It involves bikes, which I told you I've been involved with since I was essentially a, a, a kid barely able to walk. It is. It involves discipline. It involves mechanics because I'm the kind of guy that uses my hands so I can tinker on stuff. It involves gear. So I mean, I'm a gear junkie and even was back then into backpacking and outdoor. So I think it was just the adrenaline and the feeling of all of that hard all of that suffering and work coming together to a specific payoff moment in time. And it was so powerful to me. It was a drug in itself because I feel like I needed to be able to make that happen often and relive that feeling often. It was also just an opportunity to snap myself out of a path I was going down that, listen, you guys, I knew that I was going down a path that wasn't going to be fruitful. I knew if I stayed on the path I was going down, I was going to be exactly what these people in my young adult life prognosticated I was going to be. Nobody. Going nowhere, doing nothing. I could see that. I, I wasn't unaware of it. But the thing that was my calling hadn't made itself aware to me yet. And in that moment, on that day, it did. And I knew it. And I latched onto it and I listened to it. So that's about the best I can tell you because I don't know if there's any other way you can, I can really explain to you what it was I felt inside at that moment that I knew. Like, this is it, man. I knew it that day. And that day, my entire life changed. You know what I think people experience that haven't done an endurance event before? You see it often. You see people in their even 30s, 40s, 50s do something for the first time and they're forever changed. And I think what it is is like you get, you're so in the moment and suddenly all the financial worry and the fuck up worry and all the stress is deleted in your mind for a brief moment and you're just present, right? It, it erases all the shit and you cross the finish line and you get to be whoever you want to be because somehow it just cleared you right out and you cross that finish line for the first time and you go, oh my goodness, I wasn't worried about my bank account for the first time in months. I was just there. And people get hooked on that and people then get to choose like, oh man, like that was an addicting feeling that let me escape reality for a second and also maybe like recreate what's to come. I just feel like people experience that a lot. Nobody understands it until they understand it. 
And I think there's probably something there like that with you too. Yeah, you know, that's why I think I'm, I'm pretty, I'm explaining this very inadequately, but it's never going to be something I'm going to be able to quantify uh, down to some specific thing other than I knew at that time. I mean, let, let me tell you how I knew. I knew to the point of, I'm an Iowa boy, man. I haven't been anywhere at this stage of my life. But I talked that the only thing you knew about triathlon and duathlon back that day was one source. Triathlon Magazine. That's it. There was nothing more, man. There's no internet. There's no YouTube. You can't go read books on this shit. There's no training. There's no coaches. You, you just did this on your own. This one magazine. But what this one magazine consistently showed me, everybody who's the best in the sport of duathlon and triathlon lives in Southern California. Mark Allen, Dave Scott, Tinley, Pig, Wolfgang Dietrich, Paula Newby Frazier. These people are the icon of the sport, and everybody was in North County, San Diego. That's all you would read. Cardiff, San Diego, Encinitas. I don't know these fucking places. I'm a punk kid in, in barely in college. I'm not even 21 yet, you guys. I talked my dad into flying out with me to San Diego to see what it was about. And we flew into San Diego to downtown, and I'm like, Wait, what the fuck is going on here? This is a city. Yeah, I can't I can't train here. I can't race here. It's a city. There's nowhere to go. We took a drive up to North County where I live now. And that's when it was like, wah. It was fucking Valhalla, man. I knew right then, I'm out. As soon as I can, I'm out, man. I'm leaving and this is where I'm going. So uh, we're, we're jumping some steps, but this is the nature of the conversation. I ended up putting all of my shit into a U-Haul trailer, getting it an attached to an Acura Integra that should never have been able to haul the shit that I hauled in this thing and have never been to this point, this place in my life. I know nobody. I know nothing. And I drove my ass out to San Diego in the 80s, took a shitty apartment in Lacadia. Literally, you guys, it was a fucking roach-infested nightmare. It was a small, leftover um, efficiency in the back end of apartment complex. It was like, oh, we got 20 square feet left. Let's just turn it into efficiency. Fuck it. I rented that, lived there, moved out, knew nobody, knew no nothing, and started this life with the singular purpose of living this exact life I live today. And I wasn't going to take no for an answer. The jobs I took in retail, everything I did was about this lifestyle and living this lifestyle. So where were you at at that moment? Had you graduated Iowa? Yes. Yes. I graduated from the University of Iowa. With a degree in what? So my, my undergrad is a Bachelor of Arts and in psychology. Okay. Okay. So my focus was in psychology, especially... Um, Social psychology, so studying how people get into groups and, and the effect on groupthink, for example, like something we're seeing worldwide now. Like that was my major focus in college was psychology. And and your training, you had you had your terrible new balance shoes, one mile pumped up at this point now, I assume is two years later. Had you still just plugged away by yourself or had your friends at Iowa who were already in it, had they guided you in your training? No. So this would actually be three years because it okay. kind of came. So so think about this. I I had done 
so much drinking, so many drugs, so many alcohol, everything, that I had stopped all of that before I was even legal to do anything. Before I was even 21, I had already stopped, okay? So at that point, there are only a few people at the University of Iowa that, that were ahead of the curve in terms of living like this. Tim DeBoom and his brother, uh, Tony, afterwards, but really Tim, he was like the man. So at that point, that first run, shitty shoes, New Balance, one mile, turned into getting a proper shoe, training for a 5K, racing a 5K, thinking, oh my God, could I actually do a 10K? Could I do a fucking 10K? No way, man. 10K is way too much. That's, oh no, actually, maybe I can do a 10K. Into 10Ks, more duathlons, half marathon. I diversified myself. Mountain biking. I got photos of mountain bike racing back at the University of Iowa in the 80s, man. I just started to realize um, I needed to be competitive, and I needed to be competitive in the endurance sports arena. So it was all cycling and running at that point, okay? And so there were no coaches, man. I was literally just, I, you guys, if I tell you I was making shit up, I literally was making shit up. You're still making shit up, Gelati. I am, but guess what, Kurt? <laughs> it works. I'm not saying it doesn't. No, people may think I make stuff up, but uh, it's because I That's what we all do. We all make shit up. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, I was, when I started this, there were no resources, man. No coach, no YouTube, no internet, no nothing. Go check out a book at the library, maybe, and that was some 70s bullshit. And Triathlon Magazine was the only thing. So it was kind of like looking at some of that stuff and trying to figure out how do I do transitions how do I run faster? Do I go? How do I do speed work? What the fuck is speed work? Do I go to a track? Do I have to go to a track? How do I do a time trial? Do I need special gear for a time trial? There were no answers to these questions. You had to figure them out yourself, or you had to go to a bike shop and hang around with the people, or a running shop and hang around with the people that at that time had already spent time in those sports and try to learn from them. Right, pick up on what it meant to actually train to run race, what it actually meant to train to race a bike. Okay, but it was all ad hoc, made up. I better do a long run. I better do a fast run. I better do a long bike. I better do just these kinds of things. And and it was only as I got older and started getting the results that put me on the path of racing multiple world championship teams with duathlon, eight-time All-American, 25 years with USA Triathlon. Then I started to get validation that I knew what the fuck I was doing and that my feelings internally about which direction to go and what was bullshit and nonsense and what was real and was and needed to be focused on proved to be right and proved to be true. And it was those types of experiences that – Think about this. It was those types of moments and experiences that solidified that moment that I did that duathlon, that I knew that I could do something, that I knew I could do something, and I was right. That it wasn't just some crackpot bullshit. Like, I was onto something, and it got proved to be true. I want to I want to make sure we progress the timeline here, because I got some things I want to get to, and I want to make sure we have time for it. So, grad school, you went to San Diego State. I got a. I, yes. I don't like San Diego State because they rejected me when I applied to go to grad school there. I'm being mildly facetious, but I did apply. My question is: Look, so you got a degree, you got a master's, or did you stop and focus solely on triathlon or duathlon? 
I, I went to the to San Diego State University, got accepted, did my graduate work. I actually collected all my own data and all my own research on my own study. The influence of two schedules of mental practice upon the performance of a gross motor skill. This is all me, written by me. I did all the research. I collected all the data. I did not. Uh, um, but see, this is indicative of the kind of person I am, I think, because the, the, the thing that you did in graduate school is you jumped in on some professor's research. So they gave you a segment of research for their bigger piece of research. You did that for them, and that gave you your study and your research to do your thesis. I was like, fuck that, man. I'm not going to do your research and your study for you so that you can plug my work into your data and write some world-famous piece in a book down the road. I'm doing my own. So I devised my own study relative to soccer skills, gross motor skills, and mental practice, and spent six months essentially collecting all the data, running all the people through the studies, writing my own protocols, um, and then refined it into my thesis, which is now published and so yeah, I mean, I did. I, I finished it, and the entire time, I'm training and racing. What was your degree? Uh, Master of Arts in Sports Psychology. Sports Psych. Okay, cool. Because my my fallback plan was to become a sports psychologist. Now remember, this is the year 2000, 2001, so that I could go work with athletes when I was done being an athlete, and I would have not only the educational background to back up what I'm talking about. But I would have decades of experience racing and doing these things to back up what I was talking about. So I wasn't just a psychologist like you'd see on TV who had no physical background but was trying to tell athletes how to be athletes and overcome mental performance issues. I was going to bring the fucking double-barrel shotgun of being an athlete and having the education together. That was the plan. Did I miss something timeline-wise? If this was 2001, you were 30 already? Yeah, I was born in 1970, so I would have been two, I would have been 31. Was there a gap between Iowa and San Diego? Yeah, well, in okay, so so if I graduated in 1988, let's just say for the sake of argument, I was in college in 88, 89, 90, 91. Right. Moved out to San Diego roughly late 93, early 94, and boom, there we go. That's that's the quick timeline essentially. All right. Broad strokes, you had a three-year gap between graduation and moving to San Diego then? Two, roughly two years, yeah, where I worked. And then seven years, seven years between arriving at San Diego and, and doing your master's degree, completing it. Yes. Okay. This. Okay, so two things here. Yes, a couple of years after I graduated from college, then I went to moved out to San Diego. And at that time, I was working retail with the specific purpose in the backpacking industry, with the specific purpose of bettering my sport. So for example, I would commute to and from my job on a bike. When I worked construction, I used to have a bike with panniers on it that I would drive my bike at 4.30 or five in the fucking morning all the way to the job site, work a 10 or 12 hour day and ride my bike home with construction. That's a fact. I did the same thing after college so during that time, those two years before I moved to San Diego, I raced and trained religiously, exactly like I am now today. That was always my number one priority. The jobs I took and the things I did always revolved around fitting these into my schedule or I wouldn't do them or I wouldn't take them. That makes sense? Okay. Yeah. 
Okay, so, and this Kirk goes back to something I said earlier about, so Bracken, you just said seven years from when I got to San Diego to when I did grad school. Yes, and here's why. Just like I said earlier with the podcast, the day will come where I will wake up and I will know inside it's the day to execute. Not the day before, not a month before, not six months before. I don't know why. I don't know how. I can't explain it to you. It was the same with graduate school. I had known for years I was going to go to graduate school. I had always kind of felt that way. But I needed to do these other milestones in my life. And I just felt like, Kevin, the day will come where you will know. And literally, you guys, I woke up one day and said, all right, time to enroll in a GRE class. Time to start start prepping for GRE. Time to start getting ready, start taking the test. It's time, time to start getting your shit together because that point in your life has come. So just like every other goal in my life, I woke up, set the ball in motion, took the GRE exams, got accepted, went after it, and graduated at the top of my class. This thing at the top, this little medal at the top here, and there's a plaque you can't see up here for Master of Arts, Physical Education, Sports Psychology, Specification. Uh, specialization. That's because I graduated the top of my class and when I was in graduate school. Because even in graduate school, I didn't fuck around. I got straight A's in graduate school, except for one statistical analysis class. And I, I because I went all in, man. I, mm -hmm. it, I wasn't gonna fuck around. Like I wanted to be the best at what that meant at the time. And now, as you all know, because I know you two are big team sports guys, okay? Every sports team you can imagine right now has a sports psychologist on staff. It is as common as having every other kind of person on staff to help you. I was ahead of that curve in 2000 getting my sports psychology degree because I could see the writing on the wall that back then when there was barely a fucking internet, they were going to need people like this in the sports industry to help people get through their own little issues that they experience that are outside the purview of a kinesiologist or a trainer or a physician or a doctor. Okay. And lastly, sorry. No, it's all right. I wanted this degree because I wanted to investigate my own brain and I wanted to find out what my own brain was made of. I wanted to find out what my own mind was made of. So I figured if I could, I could also leverage this degree into something useful for me, man, earn mm -hmm. some some mental strength, some some mindset, some training, some like mental practice. My my thesis is a mental practice. We all mental practice, but did you even know there was a term mental practice? Did you even know that there's research that shows that statistically significant that mental practice can actually prefer improve your performance physically? Can you believe that? Because it's true, and it exists. Uh, nobody, mm -hmm. I didn't know that shit back then. Now we do. So you're now 11 years post starting your athletic pursuit in multi-sport, if you want to call it. Where are you now? You're in San Diego. Did you find the training group you wanted? Did you progress immediately, or were you not there yet? Okay, so in my mind, I often reference this 30 years. So I kind of have in my mind, loosely... 1990 is when I really went all in, okay? So I had been, I had started to dabble in those races then. But mentally, I was committed to do something here. I just knew I had to get up my skill level and my abilities. But 
I don't think it's unfair for me to say in my brain, my first race was essentially in 1990. I've been competitive before that, but in this endurance sports arena. So that's when I, that's when I consider myself as going, okay, I'm committed. Okay. So 2000, 2001, 1990. So I'm 11 years in, I can say at this point, I have to go back and look at my spreadsheets or look at my um, results. But at that point, I had then been racing religiously. There was a whole circuit within Southern California, especially at that time. It was just, it was the mecca, man, of duathlon triathlon. I could race all the time and I did race all the time. So at that point, by 2000, 2001, I have been racing legitimately and religiously for years in duathlon. What type of races? Like what level of racing are we talking? So duathlon is – so although it would be 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathon, those kinds of things, of which all of that data exists on the internet to verify, um, duathlon was my number one absolute premier focus. Everything revolved around duathlon, which is – the umbrella under USA triathlon of triathlon and duathlon. There's also aquathon. But I did a couple of triathlons, and I found out the simple fact is I'm not that good of a swimmer. So why not just focus on what I'm good at, and that's running. So duathlon, run, bike, run. So at that stage, I'm winning duathlon. I'm racing at the elite level in duathlon. Uh, I'm taking home overall victory. Okay, so you're winning. You're high end. You're the guy that yeah. like, people people know Kevin Gelati in the area, and you show up to a race with good competition, and they're like, "Ah, shit, Kevin's here. It's gonna be a, it's gonna be a tough one." Okay, so you're you're top of your game. Yeah, and that's not that's not like a braggadocious thing. Like that's that's how the world works. I mean, it happens right, 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 right now. Yeah, that's not bragging at all. Yeah, I, I mean, this is this is isn't like uh, I'm trying to be arrogant. It's like, oh yeah, fuck, Kevin just showed up. Who's gonna take second? So, yeah, man, it was like I had been on national championships. I had done regional championships. I had been a world championship team for USA Triathlon. I was full bore, balls out, all in at that point. Were you – was there any level of sponsorship or financial backing, or was this like I'm working my day job and then I'm taking every waking hour outside of it to train and race? It was more to fill your soul, not your bank account. Or were you, were you at that level? Absolutely. It was about – fulfilling my dream of how, of the life that I wanted and fulfilling my soul and this need to be competitive and push myself and hurt myself and suffer the, the hearing my name across the finish line, all of that. And remember, San Diego is not just the mecca of triathlon, duathlon. Dude, we have some of the most premier, like the Carlsbad 5000 and half marathons in this area. Like some of the best of the best people you've ever seen or you've ever known have raced in this area. And whatever it is, they race. Whether it be OCR, whether it be triathlon, road racing, running. I mean, this, is, this shit is where it's at. So I'm immersed in a culture that revolves around this style of living. My friends live like this. I live like this. I didn't interact with people that didn't live like this. This is what it was. So, But back then... Triathlon was more the mecca, so you. But but it wasn't a money earning sport like it is now. Okay, you know the it was still early in its infancy, but you know Ironman World Championships were there, but there was no money to be made in this sport. Okay, let's be crystal clear about that. You would I would get sponsors. I would get like glasses, Oakley, Metrics. Does anybody remember Metrics? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, Metrics. Okay, Syntex. 
they may suffer bikes. Zip, may they may suffer for uh, they may wheels. Perlazumi, made clothing. So you would get things like that, but it was mostly gear. Okay, it wasn't money, and there was no real money to win in the sport. But I gotta be honest with you guys, man. I don't give a fuck. It was never, ever, ever about that and never will be about that. It's cool that I got that stuff, but it was never going to be a, a non-starter if I didn't get it. I didn't care. I was going to find some way to get the best zip wheels, some way to get the best clothing, some way to get the best nutrition. I didn't care how it happened, but you didn't get into this in the 80s and 90s because you thought you were going to make money. That was, that, that was foolish. It was a foolish thought. But I didn't care because it was never about that for me. It just has never been about it for me. I don't need the money, man. It's just, mm. that's not what it is. I had just, I was curious. I, I just, I have no le- uh, idea what level you were, you were racing at. I'm going to, I'm jumping around a little bit, but it's only because okay. I want to end up transitioning to um, how we are the Kevin Gelati that most people listening to this podcast know today. But I do want to know in your duathlon career, um, one, how long was it where it was your sole focus is in how many years? And then two, I would love you to pat yourself on the back and tell me some of the accomplishments within duathlon that you're the most proud of today. 2014, 2015 was my last duathlon world championship in Ponte Verde, Spain. And you were in your mid forties. Yep. And I, and at that point on a team USA, which is about a hundred people because USA always has the biggest team. It's just, the simple fact is there's there's more affluence, there's more money, you know. So, you know, a team from Brazil might have 10 people, a team from Italy might have 100, okay? I was in the top 10 overall of the everybody at this world championship on Team USA. I had a fucking astounding day of racing, okay? I knew right then and there, and I was with my ex, that I was done. I knew it. Like I knew inside, I had been looking for a transition. So for the sake of argument, that's 25 years of 100% dedication to USA Triathlon and Duathlon. 25 years, okay? Non-stop, no time off, except for the bike accident, which a lot of people know me for, but that's a whole other story. No time off, no breaks, not in grad school, not when I was working retail, no nothing, no ever. In that 25 years, I have eight All-Americans with USA Triathlon that are verified. It's very possible I could have 10. And the reason why there could be 10 All-Americans is, according to the emails I have with USA Triathlon over the years, when they transitioned to a new computer system, they lost a couple years of data. Two years of data that I had great fucking season. What does it take to be, what does it take to be All-American in duathlon for perspective? So, Okay, well, same with duathlon and triathlon. So All-American exists in most sports. You know, you can be an All-American wrestler, an All-American football player, All-American soccer. Okay, so essentially it's a ranking based on your results because, and I could, I could pull one of them up, um, based on your results on a point system if you are like in the top five per season, okay? That's the general gist. There will be people out there that want to do the research, and I urge you to do it. Just I'm speaking hyperbolically to make the point because I do not have the actual mathematics. I can all I can show you the certificates, I can show you the details, but it's just a simply you earn points based on certain key races 
those points add up if you fall into this top five or top ten per year, whatever it is, it's all American. I'm sure baseball, basketball, football is all the same shit. So the equivalent would be like the U.S. National Series on the elite level and you end up in a top five position after all the races are settled. You could be an all-American Spartan race athlete based on those criteria. In a similar fashion, that's how it works. Okay, so the cumulative average. Got it. Yeah, that's how it is in all in all sports. So, okay, so besides those, I've raced national championships. I have national championship titles, and I've raced on maybe raced and qualified for maybe a dozen Team USA World Championship teams in duathlon that have been. I've raced. I'm looking at posters right now for ITU Long Distance May 29th, Bart Cheese, Italy. Here's one from Rimini, Italy. Rimini, Rimini, Italy in 2008. World Championship team. Here's another one from Denmark in Fredericia, Denmark, uh, duathlon World Championship. So, um, and why that is significant is you can't just walk on to a duathlon or a triathlon World Championship team. It doesn't work that way. You have to qualify. I had to travel to races and earn a spot on the team. And that would mean the top three in your category. So it wasn't just, hey, Kevin, you know, pay us 200 bucks and you can be on a world championship team. No, nah, man, you had to go fight the best people in the nation at the time in the sport to end up on these teams. And I ended up on 10 or 12 of these duathlon world championship teams. Uh, there's even photos I can show you where I was the flag bearer for Team USA. Uh, I think it was in Spain, Ponte Verde, Spain, carrying the flag in the in front of the hot, the entire team. And it's just because I was nominated to do that because of my history with that sport. Now, there are a lot of listeners who do not have any history of the sport. So give us a quick breakdown of the actual specifics of what duathlon is. Okay. So triathlon, most people will know, is swim, bike, run. Duathlon is run, bike, run. And in between the run and the bike is T1. People will read a lot of my posts and they'll see me reference T1 and T2. T1 is transition one that's off the run into the bike. T2 is transition number two off the bike back into the run. So I we start out like lined up just like we do at a spark race, lined up. Everybody fucking chopping the bit, vibing everybody, bumping elbows, giving the evil eye, let's get let's get it on. And the gun goes off. But the difference between duathlon and OCR is, and I've got data to show it, we're doing opening miles in 455. I've got opening mile splits in print 455, 5 minutes, 505. So we're talking about balls out from the moment the gun goes off, heart-wrenching speed. And this is on the road. So you're essentially road racing, right? So you're talking about doing five, five-and-a-half-minute miles coming right in off the run. How long are these runs and bikes? So so just like with our sport of OCR, Sprint Super Beast, we had Sprint International Olympic Distance. So you could have your variation. And what are they? Okay, so it's a, it's a little bit less, it's a little bit nebulous, but imagine, for example, a sprint race might be 5K, 10K, or 20K, and then another 5K, okay? An Olympic might be 10K, 30K, 5k and something longer like an international or like a uh, like an Ironman distance as we know could be well not Ironman but our equivalent of that was called Powerman so you might have a half marathon up front 60 or 70 miles on the bike and then a half marathon after that's a big day dude 
I've got the results of races uh, in uh, Colorado, Power Man Colorado, where it's like a half marathon, ride, get on the bike, ride 50 miles, which is down to the bottom of Mount Evans, turn around, come back up, go back down, turn around, come back up, and then run the half marathon up to 14,300 feet. That's a long Brutal. fucking day. That's over six hours of racing at high altitude. And I did that stuff like it was, I did it for, I would do stuff like that all the time. And I would drive all the way out to Colorado racing. For, I would drive 16 hours from San Diego out to Fort Collins, sleep in the parking lot, get up, do a sprint distance duathlon after sleeping in my car 16 hours, win, turn around, drive to Boulder, and spend 10 days preparing in the mountains to do the Power Man duathlon, which is that long. That's our highest, longest distance event equivalent to Hawaii's Ironman, the classic. That's the longest distance. So this one that I pointed out here on the wall that you can't see in Fredericia, Denmark, that was a long distance duathlon. So that was like a half marathon, 60K, and then a 10K. Think about that, people. That's a lot of work is what that is. I've, been, I've always been curious. With you um, personally, if anybody follows you on Instagram, they they know you're a fan of like the bike and the transition work and the run and combo and all that. My curiosity is back then, were you known more as like, oh, Gelati's a monster on the run. You got to watch out for him or Gelati's great on the bike. What was your specialty? And I also want to know for reference, like how fast were you running? We like to talk times on this podcast, just in, in your in your prime fitness. Um, what are some of your bests? I'm just curious. Okay. I definitely had, I was definitely known for a distance like a lot of people are in sport. I was known for sprint distance. I was the kind of guy that could put out a shitload of power and speed for a short period of time, say on the order of an hour. Okay. So sprint distance races, 40 minutes, 45, 50, 60 minutes. That's where I was excel. That's where I excelled. That's what I was known for. I could do Olympic distance and did many of them. I could do long distance and did many of them. But what I was known for was like like Usain Bolt, the dude could run a mile. He doesn't want to run a mile. He's known for his distance. I was known for sprint distance, okay? So that was – and that's what I focused on. I focused more on that high speed, high effort, heart jolting can balls out from moment one until literally you cross the finish line and you're on the verge of puking. That's why I excel. Okay. Um, within that, I could look at these results, you know, this thing I pulled out, but just off the top of my head, I've already quoted to you and I can produce the paperwork. Our, our opening miles, sometimes I can run an opening mile, 455, five minutes flat, 505. And there were still more miles to come. So it wouldn't be uncommon Let's say you're looking in the uh, 18s for a 5K in a duathlon. I'm not talking about standalone 5Ks because I can cr I've can i crushed that standalone 5K. So I'm curious about that too. Uh, uh, um, so, so thinking like if you're in the 18s, you still got to run. I mean, you still got a bike and another run to do. So coming in in those 18 to 20 ranges – in the world of running is, is fucking not even what I'm capable of, but I, I, you're considering that you still have all this work to do, okay? Now, the best of the best in the world at the time, like Benny Van Steelen, Kenny Souza, 
these motherfuckers were running 16-minute 5Ks right off the bat, man. It was unbelievable. Another guy I know, Paul Thomas, um, we all come from the same age range. We all come from that same background and work ethic. Yeah, man, there are people that I can show you historically. You can find guys even today running 14, 15, 16 minutes in the opening 5K. We haven't even gotten to the bike yet, man, and we still got another 5K to do. Plus, you can't fuck your transitions up because people can destroy a 16-minute 5K by botching a simple transition, T1 or T2. You've just blown all your work out of the water. So you got to be as proficient at those transitions like you see me do. And I talk about being under 15 seconds. I, I've gone to tracks in my life and set up shoes and a bike and done nothing but 30 minutes of transitions. Run to bike, bike to run. Run to bike, bike to run. run to Timing down. Because the best in the world, they aren't fucking around with a one-minute transition, man. That's not going to work, okay? So uh, I have 40Ks on the bike. The gold standard is about an hour. I've gone under 40. I've gone under an hour in the 40K time trial. That's one of those numbers that if you're a cyclist, it's something to aspire to because you're essentially talking about keeping 24-plus miles an hour on the bike. That's not a fucking joke. Yeah, so that gives a little bit of uh, a little bit of an idea. In your prime standalone 5K race to the death, what what could you have pulled off? I think my fastest ever was 1555ish, and I have 1605s uh, on Athlinks for Callsbad 5000, and I've got a 11555 for the half marathon which qualified me for New York City because I went, I, I qualified for New York City Marathon and I'm no marathon runner, but I did it by running hella fast half marathon. So 116, 117 was like in the zone I was typically at. And I would race these races every year. My fastest marathon is in the 245-ish range, roughly speaking, when I was really into that niche of wanting to do that, be good at that. But that was best best case scenario, but I've done like in my personal opinion, New York City Marathon is one of the hardest marathons out there. It's fucking relentless, and I've gone I think two fifty five, two fifty six, something like that. I've gone under three hours there. I beat Lance Armstrong at New York City Marathon, which is a, a weird story in itself. Can I tell it really quick? Of course. So all this hoopla about Lance Armstrong's running the New York City Marathon. You guys are both runners, so you should remember when this happened. It was a big fucking deal. Lance Armstrong's running the New York City Marathon. Oh, my God. It was a, it was a worldwide phenomenon. He's going to break into running. Okay, man, it was a big deal at the time. And I had already qualified for New York City, so I was already running. So I was like, fuck yeah, Lance Armstrong's running New York City. This is awesome. And it's I qualified for the Elite Corral. All three years I did New York City Marathon. Now remember, there's 50,000 people running this race. So I'm hammering. I'm coming into Central Park, up the hill to Central Park before you take the right-hand turn into Central Park. And there's a giant jumbotron in front of me. And I can hear behind me, in the distance, the crowd going crazy. I'm looking at the jumbotron and I'm hearing this distance. And I know exactly what the hell is going on. Here comes Lance. And here comes Lance with his entourage. The dude's got people running water for him. He's got a moped with him. He's got pacers next to him. And I'm already ahead of him and well ahead of him. I'm like, you know what, man? Fuck this noise. I did not come all this way to have this. 
And listen, I'm a Lance Armstrong fan, so let's be clear about that. I'm not motherfucking the guy. I'm just saying, I did not come all this way. I'm looking up on this jumbotron, and this guy's face is on a 50-foot jumbotron in, in front of me. The crowd's going nuts. I'm like, man, this is noise. And I doubled down. I hit that right-hand turn into Central Park, and I just started fucking hammering. Because I did not want him to catch me having done several hours worth of work. I got no entourage. I got no mopeds. I got nobody handing me water. Uh, anyway, that's just a, a fun anecdotal experiential story. But that, my life is filled with fun shit like that. But um, I have two questions about your duathlon years before we move on, Kirk. I, I know okay. you have some things you want to get to. The first you brought me to with the Lance Armstrong thing. Whether it's fair or unfair, triathlon multi-sport is known as some of the dirtiest of all sports doping wise. And you're talking about 80s, 90s, 2000s, you know, glory years of the Wild West. What was that like in duathlon? Okay, I make no, let's have no illusions about any of this, all right? PEDs have been around for decades and it's in every sport. If you think it's not no CR, you're fucking unaware. I okay? agree with you. This is the, this is, this is, I have no proof of anything, but you gotta be, Come on, man. I mean, it's the nature of the beast. So that being said, cycling is where it's really known to be prolific. And there's no yeah. denying it. It's a fucking fact. But I will tell you this, in, in all honesty, and I have no reason to lie, and, and there's no reason to sugarcoat or anything else. At the time, when I was in duathlon and triathlon, because really that 80s and 90s when I was there, it was the heyday. The stuff that guys are doing now is amazing, but really it's the Mark Allens and those guys that put on the back, uh, put it on the map. There was not rumors, innuendo, or knowledge that I ever saw or ever heard or ever was aware of that anybody in those time frames in duathlon and, tri and triathlon were using performance-enhancing drugs. Never. That's astounding. It is, but listen, let me tell you something. Also understand, in the scheme of things, I'm good, but I'm not a world championship, a world champion of the sport. So those people that I'm referencing, they're in an echelon far above me. So maybe in their circles, they knew something I didn't. But I will tell you this, I trained with and raced with regularly these guys. I was at the same race as they were. I was doing the the like almost world famous, if you were a triathlete, to athlete back then, um, golf course run, where the best of the best people showed up for this Rancho Santa Fe ran, run and ran this. And I'm talking the best of the best, Mark Allen, Tim, these guys, okay? It just, and you know what, man? I can't say whether it was or wasn't, but just based on what I know about the world, based on what I know I've seen, based on my experiences of 30 years of being an endurance athlete with my nose to the grindstone, I, I truly believe back then those guys were the real fucking deal. The real fucking deal. I just don't think the sport or they had the money because we didn't have Lance Armstrong teams like U.S. Postal that had $10 million behind their team supporting us so they could get the best of the best of anything. It wasn't like that, man. If you had a good year, Mark Allen might have made a few thousand dollars being the best guy in the fucking world. Come on, man. Where would you get the money? Who would you know? Who would you be in contact with? There was no teams behind our sport. 
So that one little data piece alone tells me these guys were the real freaking deal, man. They were the real deal. I believe that. Well, I would like that. I do not believe that's the way it is now. No, I, I we, we, we can get into that another time. But I was, I was yeah. curious about that day and age. Yeah, I just never, I never felt where that's a, where that's a typical conversation these days. You never, I mean, it wasn't even, nah. I just, I wouldn't buy it, man. I'd have to see the hard evidence to believe it back then. These, okay. I mean, a second thing, you mentioned you were in Spain or Italy with your ex. Were you rolling solo for much of this or were you married, sharing this life with someone else throughout this journey? Yeah, man, this is, le this is a legit, honest and good question. So... I have, uh, for all intents and purposes, I am, I, I live my life solo. Uh, it works for me. What I have found over the years of being with people in my life, romantic relationships, if that's what we're talking about here, is that what I do seems very neat and cool and romantic and inspiring and amazing to people on the outside looking in. And... What they don't realize is that when you get on the inside of living the life the way I live, as my ex told me, and I don't hold any malice towards her for this because to a certain extent she was right, I'm relentless. I'm relentless. There will be and there is nothing that will stop me from going down this path. Not you, not anybody. And people don't realize that until they get on the, into the inside of this life, no matter how honest I am about it. And I am as honest with you guys right now as I am with anybody I've had a relationship with in the past. I make no bones about it. I don't hide it. I don't lie about it. It's always my priority. It will always be my priority. I will never pick you over what I'm doing in my life. It's never going to happen. It never has happened. So for all intents and purposes, I've had relationships like, like everybody does throughout life, but inevitably they come to an end and inevitably it's because of the lifestyle I live because I don't answer to people. I will never answer to people. If I want to get up and leave and go spend three weeks between Greece and our Sweden racing ultra world championships and trifecta world championships, I'm going to do it. I'm not asking the permission. I'm not going to check it and run it by anybody. This is the life I live. And if you want to come along for the ride, you can. But And so the point is, it inevitably takes its toll. And I'm aware of that fact. So one of the things I realize is this is a great epiphany moment. Here it is. I believe that some people are just meant to be, meant to fly alone. And that's just the way that it is. And sometimes I believe that the gift I've been given with my athletic abilities and my ability and love for travel and my dedication, the offset to that is I'll probably be single for my entire life. And the thing is, I'm 100% comfortable and cool with that. It causes me no stress, no anxiety, no concern, no worry. I'm not lonely. I never have been. I've traveled. I've been to over 30 countries in the world. Almost all of them, but maybe five, have been by myself. I've been traveling since 1990 when you could smoke on an airplane. And I was taking my bike to Italy and you could smoke on an airplane. The only difference between that and my row of seats was a curtain. For whatever reason, you guys, and I do not know why, and I cannot explain it to you, I have just always been one of those people that's comfortable with myself and being alone. I moved alone. I live alone. I travel alone. So I think it's just maybe the offset to this awesomeness I feel like I've been given is I won't be with anybody. 
Not that I don't you tried? want to. Have, have I tried? Yeah. Have you tried to make it work like a legitimate long-term, we're going to do this? Or is it just upfront when you're done, you're done? No, I was with my ex for 10 years, man. When you say ex, what do you mean? Oh, I, 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 I was married. So I wasn't okay. married for 10 years. So my, I was, my ex and I were together 10 years. We were married for about, I don't know, four, maybe four-ish. And that entire time, including all the time before I met her and all my girlfriends before, and every girlfriend I've had since then, relationship I've had since then, I've lived this way. I've been this way. Everybody knows what they're getting into when they get involved. Like if you don't, you're not paying attention or if you don't, you think you're going to change me, but you're wasting your time. So there's no anger or animosity or anything like that there. I think it just, it just gets to, so the point, the answer to the question is, yeah, man, I've tried. Listen, do you think I would go all in on everything you've heard me go all in on and not go in on my relationships? I go all in, man. I don't fuck around with the things I do. If I'm going to do it, I do it. But remember, when it comes to relationships, unlike sport, there's two people involved and you can't account for what the other person wants or the other person's thinking. In my athleticism, I can account for everything. Every single variable I can account for. You can't count on that relationship. So that changes what you're capable of making have happen no matter what you want. It doesn't mean it will. So is this the only thing in your life that you're all in on with a caveat? Well, I guess in my mind, I don't like the delineation of saying except or but. There's no but or except for. Like, I'm all in on my relationships, man. The problem is when you're with a guy like me and this is how I operate, there's not always time for everything else. And people, that starts to make people upset and sad because you don't have that time. But there was never, but in my mind, it was never a but this. Do you understand that delineation? Like, so when you say, Kevin, are you all in on everything but this? Well, no, I'm all in on every on the things that I do. If I do it, I'm all in, but I can't account for the other person. So there is no but aspect of this. But if you're asking me if I get involved in a relationship and it's choose the relationship or the racing, I'll be single for the rest of my fucking life and I'm, and I'm fine. There will be, not, there, I, there's not, at least I can only tell you this, Bracken, based on the fact that at this point in my life, at 51 years old, I can only go on my history, and this is what my history has shown me. Now, could I meet somebody tomorrow that changes all this? Yeah, I suppose it could happen. But in 50-something years, 30-something of a dedicated racing that has it, I can only go on the trend. And the trend is, it's just, I, and here, let me say one last thing on that, Rack, and why this matters. Because everything that I value in my life that has been the most amazing experiences, moments, opportunities, memories have all come from racing. It's never done me wrong. It's never lied to me. It's never manipulated me. It's never hurt me. It's always truthful. It's always honest. And it's always exactly what it seems like on face value. I would never walk away from something like that that's that true and that honest. Never. It's given me too much. I get that. I would say... Endurance athletics is inherently a selfish endeavor, right? And sacrifices need to be made in order to make other people fit into your life consistently, right? And so it's a tricky balance, is it not? I mean, we are inherently self-absorbed in our metrics, in our schedule, in our workouts. And so it takes a, a fine-tuned life 
in order to make it all work and make it all work well. And Bracken's a shining example of that with three kids and a wife and a blooming career in 2021, I have a feeling. So it's easy to acknowledge. I mean, I mean, you're just, you're drawing a harder line in the sand than most, but I think most people really dedicate to dedicated to this sport struggle with that. And so I think it's very, I think, think it's very relatable. Um, you're on one extreme end, but there's still some relatability to that. Um, listen, I have like 10 to 15 minutes at best before I got to go to physical therapy. So I need to jump to your Spartan days, man. We got to get there. We got to, we got to get there so uh, we can get that in. Um, what, why, 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 when, how? Yeah. Easy, easy answer. Easy. Did my first Spartan in 2011, met Joe DeSena. He hired me as a contractor that day for the company. I loved what they were doing. I loved his energy. I loved what his agenda and his goal was. Now remember, it's 2011. But I'm still dedicated to duathlon. I didn't feel like my career was over yet. I didn't feel like I had reached everything I wanted to. So although I had been doing Spartan since day one in 2011, 12, 13, I, I continued to do them. My focus was duathlon. But as I told you in 2014, when I got out of duathlon in Spain, I had been looking for a way out for about a year. I needed to transition out. I could see the writing was on the wall, that I had done everything there was for me to do in this sport. There was nothing more for me to accomplish. But I'm a competitive guy, and I need to be competitive. I have to. And Spartan Race had always interested me. And by that time, 2011, when it was pretty fucking janky, by 2014-15, we're way, way more legitimate. It's no longer shit made from Home Depot and they're building it as you're coming to the obstacle. We're 2014-15. We have legitimate stuff set up. So to me, at the time, it was a natural progression to move right into OCR. You also have to remember, in 2014-15, the trajectory of OCR was, dude, we were nothing but straight up, man. It was on the uphill climb. Every, every bit of media, every bit of news, it was on the upswing. So I just jumped on. And what happened was I said to myself the following, you guys, just like I said to duathlon 30 freaking years ago, I said this to myself, Kevin, dude, you could do this. And I bet you, you could be pretty good at it. But what it's going to have to happen here is, you're going to have to totally 100% reinvent yourself. I was all legs and no body back. It's all cycling and running, dude. I have photos I've shown where I'm literally 15 pounds heavier. It's all legs, okay? I could barely get some of the stuff done in a Spartan race. I failed every Hercules hoist I'd ever done. I couldn't do the rope climb out of the water pits. That was back then when we had the water pits. I was doing... Six failures a race, but what was happening was I was running all kinds of motherfuckers down in between those obstacles. So I was like, dude, you got the run, man. You can do this. You've proven you can do this, but you're so physically weak. It's a joke. And I looked at it as just doubling down and being like, okay, dude, you want to do this? So here's what I said to myself mentally. I didn't tell anybody this except for my wife at the time. I was like, you know what? Oh, I got a crazy story. Hold on. So, so I told myself mentally, Kevin, give yourself two years, go balls out for two years, get some CrossFit, get strong, train yourself and see what happens. Two years later, I'm doing it. I did exactly what I said I could do. I did exactly in my brain what I thought I could do, just like I did 30 years ago into Athlon. Something tripped inside my mind and I said, you know what, dude, 
You're not going to be good at soccer. You're not going to be good at going back and doing cross country. Dude, you could probably be pretty good at this OCR stuff. So I went all in and I literally, I literally did everything I could to reinvent myself physically. Started from scratch with a whole new body, a whole new mindset and everything from duathlon. I left it all behind and went this direction. Now, let me just tell you that story. I was going to tell you really because it's, it's interesting. Duathlon, uh, uh, Tahoe, 2014, 2015, 2014, 2015, I believe, Tahoe. My ex and I filed divorce papers the week of that race. I showed up, 2015 in Tahoe, a mental fucking wreck, man. Because listen, I told you I'm all in. So I took, that's the biggest, one of the biggest failures of my life is that, okay? So it hit me hard because I, I take what I do serious. I took it serious. So the point is I showed up just off filing papers, the 2015 Tahoe World Championships, an absolute mental disaster and still pulled it together and got that race done. I can look back at that stuff now and just kind of laugh and giggle about it because it's real. It's honest. It's history. There's no why deny it. Why lie about it? It's the, it's the truth of the matter. So just to me, I look back at those moments like, man, if people realize how much of a wreck I was in 2015 at that race, dude. <laughs> how many races have you done in your Spartan race career, Kevin? Do you know? Of course you know. Pull out that file with how many? 119. How many Spartan podiums, elite or age group, have you made? Do you know? Yeah, about 60 total. And you used to race in the elite waves as well before age group and competitive became sort of the thing it is, correct? That is right. I did. Back then it was only elite and kind of this open and the biggest players were elite. I could tangle with a lot of those guys back then. Not like now, but yeah, elite was where you wanted to be. And then masters elite came along, which is just some made up bullshit, but that's, it is what it is. So then I moved to that. And then, of course, I've been a proponent, as you and most people know, for age groups since before it came, I pushed for it. When it came, I, I pushed for it. Now I'm all in on that. Nothing. That's all I want. I, I'm cool where I'm at. I, f I feel like you are the, not the old guy, because you're not the old guy. You're in your 50s. But you're like the older guy face of Spartan without really knowing yeah. it. Like when people look on social media, I'm being serious, like, yeah, there's your, there's your, exactly, right behind you. You're kind of a guy that people look up to when they first come into the sport and they see your crazy shit on Instagram that you're doing. And I had wanted to get into all the questions about how you do that and all that, but we're going to run out of time. But the one thing I do want to know, there's a lot of newbies that are watching you. And I think you know that. A lot of people say, oh, this guy's older and more distinguished. He's been around for a long time, even with the sport and then endurance athletics. And they're kind of taking what you're doing to heart. And so I want to know, with all the stuff you're doing, like, what is your training philosophy and what is the the rhyme behind your reason to your workouts? Like the no days off sort of thing, the pedal to the metal, the all of those things that contradict a lot of what Bracken and I believe in, to be honest, as far as training goes. Um, what's the rhyme to the reason? And how do you formulate these workouts and all that? What Your best sort of Cliff Notes version, I guess, would be great. It's 30 years of history and knowing my body and experimenting with different methodologies, being able to weed the chaff out and the, from the bullshit that people get mired down in, knowing what actually produces results, which is just a bunch of fluff versus just a bunch of fluff, and knowing that for me personally, 
I get the greatest results training the way I have trained for decades. It's never done me wrong. I've proven its merit. Anybody, I mean, they can question it all they want, and it doesn't mean anything to me because I have the experience and the background to support what I'm doing. So it's just a matter of me believing in myself, believing in what I'm doing, wanting to put it out there for people to see, and then they can correlate that to the results themselves, and they can decide whether I'm full of shit or not. But a lot of it is, you guys, this is, if you think about all of this stuff we're talking about, it can essentially be boiled down to one kind of core essence from back in 88, 90 when this happened to where I'm at today. Ready? I believe in my gut and my intuition. It's proven me right time and time and time again. I look at what I need to do to get to some place and I can pretty quickly see the path that it's going to take and I push all the other bullshit out of the way. And that's like, so my philosophies, I went 263 days with no days off and the only reason I went a day off is because my dog Rambo died. Rambo, rest in peace. You were the fucking man. You changed my life for the better. Leave that in. We will. I would have kept, I would have kept going. So I... Also, I'll leave it at this because I know you have to get The things that I do, I do for a reason. I'm just not making shit up for fun. This isn't a joke to me. This isn't a hobby for me, man. This is how I live my life. So when I say it's a lifestyle, that is exactly what it is. I'm not going to go making crap up to get a bunch of likes on Instagram. I don't give a fuck about that. I do this stuff because I want to prove to myself or prove to others that there is merit behind what I'm doing. So I don't just like, oh, man, let's go do this because it might look cool. I'm like, is this really going to get me down the road of where I want to be? That's how I come to my training philosophy. Doing ladder drills on the ground, fuck that noise. It's not going to do any good for OCR, okay? It's shit like that. I just like, whatever. You want to go carry something heavy and run in and out of it so that your heart learns how to translate between carrying a 50-pound obstacle and then setting it down and then trying to run a six-minute mile? That is some legitimate functional fitness. It's a value. These ladder drills, come on, man, come on. And it just comes from personal experience. Well, well, we we like to you know we like to promote. We will say like compromise or transitional work. We are very known for that, um, and we believe in it. And you, you're definitely on that train. I want to know how many days a week are you doing transitional work in your training? Meaning you're not just going out for a run or you're just doing a strength workout where you're combining different facets of training. Are you doing that most days of the week? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so for example, we've got Spartan race Jacksonville coming up. I think both you guys are going. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so, um, I train seven days a week. I don't take any days off until my body tells me to, and I know what I'm listening for, so I know what that means. It may not mean anything to anybody, but that simple sentence means something to me. Uh, I would say in those seven days, at least five, if not even six, depending on where I'm at in my training cycle and what race I have coming up, are transition-related, multiply stacked workouts with multiple tools. Very rarely is it just a run, just a bike, or just an HIIT. It's almost 99.2% of the time, it's a combo of transitionatory work. And okay. there's a reason why. That's, that, again, is just not something I made up. There's a specific reason why. Want me to tell you? Mm-hmm. I've got 30-something years of doing this, man, and I don't need to keep building base. 
I've got 30 fucking years of bass, man. How much bass do I need to build? So what I determined about my body and about my mindset is what I do need to hone is the speed and the proficiency with which I move amongst these obstacles. I can go out any day of the week and run one of these races, no problem, with zero training. That's a non-issue. I don't need long days of building base. I need to move faster. I need to get stronger. I need to be able to get in and out of a bucket carry as fast as possible. That's what I need. And because of that, high-intensity interval training, HIIT, is fucking gold to me. Gold. And you know how else I prove that? The very last three months of workouts. I did in 2014, going into Spain, Duathlon World Championships, were done out of my garage doing those Duathlon brick workouts that never lasted for 30 minutes or more because I had a bad hamstring pull, and it's the only workout I could do, and I had the best fucking world championship of my life. Explain that. I explain it because my body knows what it's doing, and I know what I'm doing, and that high-intensity work is more refining and more valuable than just going on these endless long runs and long bikes. It won't make you any faster. Your mileage may vary. I like it. Hey, Kirk, uh, can I ask you to do something? Yep. Can you set a sleep timer on your computer? A sleep timer? Yeah, if you go to, I think on Mac, Kevin will know more than me, but system preferences, battery, sleep timer. You could set it to shut down in like 20 minutes. Oh, do you want to keep going? I do have a yeah. couple things I do want to ask Kevin. Uh, how do I do this? Or just let it, just let it roll and walk away. I, I'm controlling it though. Well, here's He's the, the host. I'm the, the host. I, I'll probably be back home in an hour. It would just keep recording nothingness, I guess. I can edit that out. Fine with me. Okay. This is me signing off, folks. All right, dude, later. Get, hey, listen, man, I was just fucking with you about your ankle. Just like, get your ankle healed. I don't like, you know what I don't like? I don't like to see people that I like that have skills and abilities be injured and sidelined it's obnoxious isn't it it just it bums me out man get you, you need to be back out there i agree and that's what i'm going to get taken care of and i got sneaky good fitness right now kevin nobody knows it but i do so watch out all right i'm out enjoy the later. rest of the conversation see you man see ya bye bye later man thank you all right so yeah i had some pieces i wanted to ask about previously that we didn't get to and i'm just gonna piecemeal this back in Okay. So first of all, I'm going to piggyback off this. You are one of the few people with a multi-sport background who are still doing our sport. Early on, there were more triathletes in here. And for whatever reason, it's not anymore. But I see a lot of what uh, people assume most of what I do with my running and my coaching comes from running knowledge and experience because I ran in college, but I ran the 800 meters in college. <laughs> I trained for a race that was going to be less than two minutes. There's really very little of what I learned in college that I use now. Truly, there's there's very there's very little carryover. A lot of my coaching style comes from reading triathlon training manuals because I believe that they have figured out how to get volume in other ways from just pure road running, and they have figured out the power of brick workouts. And I see OCR as one giant brick workout essentially. I have never felt anything else in my life that feels like getting done with a, a quarter mile bucket carry than T2. It's just, it's too clear. So I spend a lot of time with that. So I want to hear about the lessons you learned in duathlon and what that's played into designing your workouts now. Okay. <clears throat> I can't explain 
anybody who was in triathlon that was in OCR that's bailed out since. But I agree with you wholeheartedly um, that there is a value in that concept of multi-sports training and that it carries over to exactly what we're doing. And I equate it to whether I'm running in off the run into the bike and having to do a transition in between, then getting on the bike, doing that portion, and then coming back off, doing a transition, and getting back into the run. For all intents and purposes, it's a duathlon. It's a multi-sports all the way. And here are the, here are the ways to think about it and why I knew that if I was going to leave duathlon and go into a sport, it was the most obvious sport. Because think about this. I'm using mar- large muscle groups on those opening 5K runs. I'm hammering. It's all, it's all legs. I'm coming into a transition, T1, for those people, transition one, off the run into the bike. I have to immediately stop, literally stop a high-speed run on a dime right in front of my bike, lean over, grab a helmet with my heart rate at 180-something beats per, per minute, pick up a helmet, put it on, have the fine motor skills to find the buckle, buckle the buckle, lean back over, pick up a shoe after already having taken off a shoe, put it on, find the strap, pull it tight, do it again on the other foot, pull the bike out of the rack, run the bike down the space we're allotted to the uh, transitionary exit, get on the bike, then do the bike, and then think about doing all of that in reverse. When I come back in, I have to ditch the bike, take off the helmet. It has to go in a very specific place because if I do it do, do it just right, I will get penalized. So I have to pay attention to these details in the minutia. Now, think about that and think about OCR. You're out there in the middle of nowhere running, banging out miles, using your legs and your heart rate. And all of a sudden, you got to come into something like the twister. Immediately, your heart stops. You got to turn around if you're a backwards twister guy like I am. You got to line it up. You got to think about it. You got to do these finer muscle movements grip, finger, arm, strength. Forget about your legs, they're pointless. It all is a total switch in what you're asking your body to do on a dime and just for a matter of seconds. Then you drop off. After you make sure you hit the bell, which in its own is a minutia piece of detail, you know, your brain's doing all these calculations. Then you drop to the ground without falling, and then you got to run again, and now you're back into using these large, large muscle groups. If multi-sports training from triathlon and duathlon is not as good of an equivalent as to what we're doing in OCR, tell me which one is, because I don't know what it is. So if we can agree upon that, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like we do then it makes absolute sense to take that to the next level and modify that to work for OCR. So, for example, I'm not coming into my OCR workouts. Well, I am in coming in and get on the bike, but that's because I love the bike and I will never give up the bike. So let's just say when I'm doing my workouts and I'm come, I'm come bombing in after a six-minute mile and I pick up a bucket and I got to run up a hill super slow. Dude, that's a duathlon. I just did yep. a transition. I may not be going out on the bike. I'm carrying a bucket. It's the same thing. It's the same ultimate, same concept. It is. And it goes deeper, I think. I think it goes deeper to running quad dominant, suddenly power hiking up with hamstrings and hips more involved and moving back and forth, just like you would coming off of a time trial bike or off a road bike, that shuttling back and forth between muscle groups is a learned skill 
And it that that carries its same way too. Running with a bucket is not the same posture as running. And so it engages different subsets of your musculature. I will expand on that. Think of, okay, so when I was first doing Spartan races, more not for fun because I'm a competitive guy. So I went to I went took it serious like everything, but I was the player. I mean, you got guys like Holy Call showing up. So come on, okay. So, but and I was still into duathlon, but it's it seemed reasonable to me when I started to think about the type of training that you'll notice that in my type of training, I make sure to mix those pieces up. So there's a there's some days that are really high speed. It's all about moving fast, and there are some days where it's very much about a high speed component that goes right into a low speed drudgery. There's components that are high speed and try to come right into the six minute mile and throw a spear when your heart rate's up. So it's like those, 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 that type of um, skill set crosses over and transcends over to our sport on, you know, you want to take, you want to get more specific because you like, you're thinking of that more kinesiological aspect about muscle groups. It can even go deeper to that. It's proprioception, like just training your your mind and your body to understand when you went up the spear, you can get better, not just at throwing the spear, that's a physical thing. I can get better by doing it so often, my mind knows how to do the calculations of where to grab the spear so I can save less time in picking it up, how to balance it quicker, the, doing the mathematics between the hay bale and, and the spear. like So it can even go deeper than that. So mm-hmm. when you look at so so I made a wisecrack about ladders doing ladder drills or okay what's going to be more what's going to be more beneficial doing fifty ladder drills or or trying to exert yourself and run up and do fifty spirit throws if you want to get better a Spartan rate okay mm-hmm. so to me it seems so logical and so obvious that Bracken this is the reason why I get in trouble with people, because I'm willing to poo poo some of the shit they're doing. That I firmly believe not to just be a contrarian, not to just be an asshole, not to just be a jerk, but I have a degree that involves kinesiology, it involves anatomy, it involves psychology. I have decades of experience. Like, if I laugh at something, it's not because I'm trying to shit on somebody, it's because I feel like I've been able to see through the nonsense and get to what down to what I think is really going to make a difference. If you want to be good at that sport, and that means you can't try to cover every possible base there is to cover. You need to cover the key ones that are going to make up the most time and make you the most proficient in the sport. And that means transition and transition. I have said from day one of this sport, before people were even doing podcasting, one of the most important aspects to OCR is transitionatory speed. Bracket, I used to come out of the monkey bars, and I had to walk. Yeah. 30 seconds because I couldn't even get my heart rate down to start running. Dude, I can come out of the monkey bars now and be running in midair and hit that ground like nothing even happened. That is proof to me that what I'm doing has merit because I've seen it and analyzed it from firsthand experience. I know what I was like in 2011. 2012, 2013, 2014, 15, doing these obstacles. Dude, I'd be gassed. I'd have to walk up to I'd have to walk up to the rope climb and stand there for 30 seconds before I could even get to the point where I was prepared to do it. 
I ran my first race in 2011. I was six months removed from being an All-American in track. And I couldn't lift my arms up after my first barbed wire crawl. I ran with them at my sides. And that moment, I realized this sport is not about how much speed you have. It's about how much speed can you access once you're compromised. And that reframed everything I've ever done since then. Because I remember running through the woods in Illinois with my hands at my side like a penguin thinking, I'm an All-American. Yeah! <laughs> and this course doesn't care. This course does not care because I can't access any of the fitness I built up because it was too specific to something that was not this. And on top of that, that's why I have such a love and a passion for this sport. Independent of the fact that I have a long-term relationship with the Spartan brand, you've seen me do almost every brand. I've done almost every band, OCRWCs, terrain races, savage races, Spartan races, Atlas race, shit that doesn't even exist anymore that already is gone. Like It's because I saw that this was like the ultimate way to use every aspect of your body. Think about this. You have to be able to run. You have to be able to do obstacles. You have to be able to do calculations. You have to be able to do problem solving. I mean, this sport pulls in so many pieces of what it means to be an athlete and the gifts we've been given as human beings, you can leverage them in this one sport, almost all of them. And <laughs> that to me is freaking amazing. And that's why I'm so passionate about it, have such a love for it, is because I see in every way, shape, and form it tests me. Every race tests me. I'm better than I was, but it still tests me. And I love that, and I love the aspect of the unknown. I think that's the ultimate metric of, not the ultimate, but a superb metric of an athlete is what can you do under a high-stress situation when your competition is on your ass, and this can down, come down to seconds, and you're presented with a problem you need to solve post-haste mentally and physically. I didn't have that in duathlon anymore, dude. Dude, I could go duathlon. And I could put myself in my brain in neutral and think about what I was going to have for dinner and what movie I was going to watch that night and still win. It wasn't asking enough of me. Kevin, I spent every race of my college career waiting for the last 200 meters. I get it. Every single race. And you know what you learned in those races? How close you can hold your hand to the flame without cracking. And that's about it. You learn that either your tactic worker didn't or they were more or less fit than you or they're more or less tough. But that was it. And that's all, that's enough for a while. But then you talk about exactly that piece. You learn something about yourself. You're tested every obstacle course race. And I think ultra running can do that, but there's less variables yeah. and they're almost less controllable sometimes. But OCR is, I think, the purest form of every time you come back from a race, you're a little different. Whereas you could come off a duathlon or a track race and be like, you know what? Man, someone's pacing just blew up the field from the start, and I didn't even get a chance to do to execute a race. You you don't have that on an OCR race because there isn't a moment of relaxation. Listen, one of the things I used to say in duathlon towards the end is like the only difference between me and the guy that beat me was he was willing to suffer more that day. That's it, man. I mean, there there are there are so many more variables in these OCR races that you have to manage and practice for that. You can't just distill it down to the guy outran me. I mean, if you look at the minutia of, let's just say, 30 obstacles, each one has a transition and transition out. So there's 60 of those. 
plus the obstacle, plus the runs, plus the nuance of the obstacle. For example, is it going to be better in this scenario to bucket carry with a bear hug or shoulder it? Is it going to be better in this scenario to put the bag on both sides of your shoulder? Or are you going to want to have one free so that you can grab a tree on the way up because of it? Like all of these variables shift and change every race. Yes, it's an OCR race. Yes, we have the same obstacles over and over. Yes, but if you approach it with the proper mindset and open your mind to what you're actually doing, there is so much variability change each race that to me, it's hella exciting to realize that, man, I could fuck this twister up and it's game over, man. It's game over. Yeah. And I love that. I love watching the replays of races and I love specifically watching the entry to the sandbag because you watch the elite athletes come in or age group and you have Ryan Atkins who comes in and slings it over both shoulders. <laughs> and then you have VJ Jones who comes in and stops for three seconds to shake it to the bottom and fold it in half. And then you've got Aaron Newell who will come in and just throw it over his shoulders and go whatever, however it lands, you know, and VJ is saying, I'm sacrificing three seconds on my entry so that I do not have to adjust this thing one time and I'm never caught off ground. My stride's right where I want it. Whereas Ryan's going to go, I'm going to start running with it and I'm going to shift it as needed because my base is so strong. Like that kind of thing. There is one transition technique in triathlon. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yes. There is one passing technique on the track. That That's it. It's You all do it. And it comes down to, like you said, if they beat me, they're either tougher or they're genetically superior. Yeah. And so, and, but here's the beautiful, beautiful thing about the example you just gave, which is a great example. Each one of those options, VJs, Ryans, or Aaron's, all have merit. Mm -hmm. I have practiced every one of those methods. I can do every one of those methods. In the, but the beauty is in the moment, at the time, based on the location, the weather, the terrain, the setup will be the determining factor in that second, which option I choose. Yep. But I prepared and trained for all of them. And all of them are in my back pocket to use. I don't just carry the bucket one way. Listen, here, here's something, a really goofy example you make, people never think of, but it's almost ruined races for me. And then I figured it out and I started to adjust accordingly. I have a lot of money in tattoo work to the point of where I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to be that guy that's 70 and all of his stuff looks like fucking garbage. I'm invested heavily in sunscreen. 100 SPF sunscreen. I spray my entire body before a race. That is a slippery issue to Dude, have. I have fucked myself in races because that sunscreen got on my hands and I slipped. So that's the level I like to play at. I like to think in that level. That one bit of sunscreen. You don't ever think about sunscreen. I do. I think about it precisely because I know exactly the damage it can do. I know a bucket can slip off your shoulders, fall and hit the ground, and scatter your rocks all over. You're screwed, man. You're screwed. I know what that means. So I train and prepare for those types of scenarios. Mm -hmm. one, of, one of the most important words I learned in grad school, and here it is. I spent four years in grad school busting my ass. And this is the, one of the greatest words I ever learned. Specificity. What that means to people that don't know is specificity of training means you train like you want to race. You train like you want to perform. You don't see me in a gym. I don't race in a gym. 
You see me using the exact tool I will use in a race because that's the tool I will use in a race. You will see me using the clothing and the sunglasses and the shorts and the gear, everything down to the minutiae I will use in training that I expect to use in the race. That real world train like you want to race is probably one of the most uh, important pinnacle aspects next to the concept of consistency. How I value the metric of consistency as being an athlete is probably the most important number one aspect of being a, an athlete is consistency. Next to that, it's specificity. So I would go to, I go to places, I do things, I train with a bag we would use. All of these things, I don't, I'm not doing this, like I said an hour ago, I'm not doing this stuff for, as a joke. Like there is a rhyme and a reason behind every single thing you do. It's not for a like, it's not for a wow, that's cool. It's not for a wow, he's just trying to be different. No, man, I do it because I know this is what's gonna make me better at my sport. Specificity of training. That's why I don't need to be going out and doing certain types of workouts that I know, I, like, uh, just, I'll use the ladder skill. I see people showing this ladder work. Exactly how does a ladder drill translate to you actually running a race in the real, in the real world that's got snow, mud, gravel. Like, I'm not necessarily looking for your answer, Bracken, because... I actually have one. Okay, well, let's hear it. First is that it doesn't. Second is that I have prescribed ladder drills to one type of athlete in the past. And it was as, it started as skill work prior to their strength days. And then it progressed to compromised work where they had to climb on their treadmill at their steepest incline until they're fatigued. And then they had to get off and do the ladder. And this was for people who had incredibly slow feet with terrible proprioception, who were terrible technical downhill runners, and they didn't live a place they could technical downhill. So that is the one time in my life I have prescribed ladder drill work. Okay, you ready? Ready? Yes. You actually made a convincing argument for me, and I appreciate that. <laughs> but and here's what I'm going to tell you. You're it. right. Listen, man. I, listen, I know when I hear things that are proper. And I know when I hear things that are bullshit. You just laid out a legitimate scenario to the utility of that tool. Mm -hmm. But bracket, when you look at 99% of the people on video doing that, they're in a no. gym and they're just doing ladder drills and it's going to have zero applicability to them performing an OCR better than they do if they just get out and do some speed work. Speed work! Okay? I agree. Okay, so you gave an example that actually has merit, but that's not what we see. That's not what Correct. people are doing. People aren't thinking that way. They just see the ladder drill, they go out to buy the ladder, they put it out in the street, they do the ladder, like, oh my God, I'm gonna get better than LCR. No, man, it isn't gonna mean shit. It's not gonna translate to anything. You're wasting your time. You gave a legitimate scenario that I can applaud and I can get on board with. It's also a one-off scenario, so you are correct. So that brings me to my final piece for you. You talked about, we can just go around, travel the world. To the outsider, that's all you do anyways. Like you're, you're in Telluride and then you're in, you're in Greece and you're, you're just everywhere. And most people don't know. They, they think, is he independently wealthy? Does he have a sugar daddy? Like what's going on with this man right here? Explain what you do, how you are able to have this what appears to be the semi-disposable income lifestyle where you drop and you go when you feel like it. Most people want to do that, but they, they can't. All right. I'm going to answer this in a roundabout way. 
That shocks me zero percent. But uh, but but it shouldn't shock you, shock you that you will get your answer. Oh, I know we'll get there. The reason why people want to do this but don't do it is because they didn't commit to live this way. Okay, when I committed in college to live this way, I committed to live this way. Okay, that's what it is. That's the difference. That's the big difference between me and most people. They like the idea of doing it, but they don't really want to do what it takes to do it. And that means getting fired from jobs because you want to train more than you want to race. Having girlfriends leave you because they can't take it anymore. Having problems in your marriage because your training and racing and travel schedule is too burdensome. Having family want to disown you because you don't come visit enough because you'd rather spend your time off from your job traveling to a race than coming and seeing your own family. Mm -hmm. Having to spend your income on travel and forget about shit like clothing and really badass material goods. Everything I do and said is putting this lifestyle first. And because of that, I made decisions as a young man when I put this ball in motion to make sure that it would allow me to live this life that I want to live later in life and do so unencumbered. So. Do I invest? Yes. Have I saved money? Yes. Do I work every single day from the year? So from the year, so in grad school, I told you I went to start for sport. I went for sports psychology. That was going to be, that was going to be the ultimate exit strategy because I was still going to be able to stay in sports with badass athletes coming from being an athlete and work with one of the aspects I love the most. That's the mindset. Okay. During grad school, I took a statistical analysis class. In that class, in 88, 80, or uh, no, 99, 2000, whatever, we had to learn how to use the internet, which was just burgeoning. And it was so archaic, dude. I, I mean, people don't even know the internet back in 1990, like 2000, 99, 98. It, some people have no idea what it was. But it was essentially nothing. It was archaic and it was so hard to use. But he said, I want you to run your data set, crunch your numbers, and I want you to convert it to HTML, write the code, put it on this website so that I can review it remotely from my office. I do not want it sent to me on a piece of paper. And Bracken, I was so fucking mad. I was like, dude, I didn't get into grad school to sit here to work learn about working and, run, and doing computer code and HTML. I mean, come on, dude, this is bullshit. I mean, I threw a fit, man. I, I got mad at this guy. I was like, you're derailing what I'm trying to do here. Who knew that that one professor in that one class was going to change an another level of change besides Shaggy that got me into race on the bet? This guy's one requirement changed my entire life because what I found out is, oh, shit, I like writing code. Not only do I like writing code, it makes sense to me. I can see it. I understand it. I'm good at it. It all, it's all, everything that I look, when I look at code, HTML, JavaScript, CSS, whatever, makes sense to me. I don't know why, but it does. Okay. That set in motion a completely different life. I get out of graduate school and what do I do? I go into computers. I don't go into, I don't go into sports psychology. It changed everything. It's a crazy story, but it's how it really happened. Next thing you know, I'm building websites. Next thing you know, I'm writing code. Next thing you know, I'm designing logos. I'm designing stationery. I'm helping companies like Sony, Panasonic, 
uh, Office Depot. Uh, I'm working for large corporations who are who have me on staff to write and build code to make websites in 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, all the way up until I finally got out of working for corporations because I couldn't take the corporate nonsense. So making decisions like that, reading the writing on the wall about what the internet was going to mean, what it could be, that allowed me to transition real quick into something I knew that I could make a living off of for in perpetuity, essentially, as long as I learned these tools for coding and writing this stuff and became creative and realized, shit, man, I can make logos. I like all of the videos, every single thing a custom, anybody who's on Instagram sees, I did. I filmed it. I edited it. It's my idea, my logos, my everything. It's all me. I don't use anybody else's work. That all stems ultimately from that moment in time when that guy made us do that HTML. So what that means is that introduced to me a lifestyle that allows me to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, as long as I have a computer and internet at my disposal, I can do my job in a parking lot and you would never even know. I can do it on an airplane. I can do it taking a shit in the bathroom. It doesn't matter. Nobody needs to know as long as the work gets done. So it was not only the decision to never put this lifestyle second place, always to put it first place, and then making proper financial decisions. When my friends were partying, I was investing money. When my friends were fucking off for the summer, I was working construction and making mad amounts of money as a high school kid, college kid, in a summer, banking that, investing that. So it's a matter of you know making prudent and smart decisions my whole life that always put first the question, if I do this, will I be able to live this continued lifestyle? And if I couldn't, I didn't do it. If I could, I did it. So I work, I build websites, I write code. For yourself? You work for yourself? I work for myself. I've had my own consulting business since 2000. If you ever signed up for or interacted with Spartan's website from 2011 to roughly Let's just say for the sake of argument, 2015, you worked on my work. You used my work. I was the guy that single-handedly from 2011 to at least 13 built, maintained all of Spartan's website and all of the registration pages, all of it, with Joe DeSena calling me on the phone or emailing me, Kevin, we need a Arizona race page tonight. Joe, we have no Arizona race. Yeah, but if you make an Arizona page, we'll have an Arizona race. Can you get me an Arizona page up tomorrow? Okay, dude. I mean, that's it was that grassroots back in the day. He and I, one-on-one, -on -one, exchanging emails, getting the job done. That transition to, obviously now, we have a worldwide group. More, I mean, a ton of people that do my job. I'm not that involved anymore on that level. I work on other projects like some SGX stuff. Um, I built Spartan. We had a website 430 project. I've done marketing pieces. I've done websites, I've done emails, I've done, I mean, you name it, I've done it for this company. So that's how my relationship is there. But it's the same thing I've been doing for other clients. I have, I have a client I spent an hour on the phone yesterday who's in the insurance industry outside of the state of California. But here's the thing, Bracken, my goal and my agenda by being on social media is to push a lifestyle, therefore, how I live and what I do, what I own, what my house looks like, what my car looks like is nobody's fucking business. 
because that's not what I'm trying to promote. I'm not trying to be a baller promoting this thing I got. I'm trying to live a lifestyle so all of my content singularly focuses on this lifestyle. That's it. That's what I want to show. So I can understand how people remotely can see this and go, what the fuck does this guy even do? And is this all he does? For all intents and purposes, yes. This is all I do, and it's all you need to know about that I do because it's what I want to show you. I respect but, that. But rest assured, I'm not a slacker. Just fuck it off. I work every day. I, I, I'm as serious about my job and what I do to the point of I could turn this computer right around right now and show you code I'm working at for the Spartan SGX website right now. It'd probably bore you. You probably wouldn't even know what you're looking at. But that think about this. That's a whole other weird juxtaposition. How often do you see hardcore, long-term dedicated athletes that sit at a computer and write code? Mm -hmm. I don't know many people. I know like three. That's funny. I like it though. And it works for you. You found your way to live your lifestyle sustainably. And that is the ultimate goal that everyone has. Few people are able to take the leap though. And you know what, Bracken? I think sometimes the people that get mad at me or the people that may not like me, I truly believe, and this isn't, I'm not shitting on anybody. I'm not casting judgment, but as a guy that has two degrees in psychology, essentially, obviously I sit around and I think about this stuff. Like I, I analyze mm -hmm. this. I think sometimes people get mad at me because I'm doing something they want to do, or I'm, I put myself in a position to do the things I want to do. And it's upsetting to some people that I do get to travel the world and I do get a race and I get to do these things. But, but what they're not considering is this isn't by luck, man. I didn't just, this isn't luck. I'm not lucky. Like I, I gave up things in my life to be here. I've sacrificed stuff that people don't understand relationships with family members. Yeah. You set this ball rolling at 19. Yes. And you haven't deviated from the path since. No. And I think that's the best thing people can know about who you are in your lifestyle is that you haven't changed in the past 31 years. Anybody who knows me that long, and I can turn you on to people, some of them you know, some of them you've raised, can vouch for that and tell you. I'm exactly yeah. the same guy that they met before the internet even happened and hang out with today that I am today. None of that's changed. Yeah. It, it's like, it's just, but, and so anyway, but the point is, that's why I think people get mad. It's like, fuck, this guy does this. He gets to do that. And I think, you know, it's just a, it's a very low level type of jealousy that, and, and again, it's not, I'm not trying to be braggadocious. I'm not trying to rub it in anybody's nose. This is just the life I live and the life I want to live. You live the life you live. You show what you want to show. This is what I want to show. And it's not a, it's, it's not a gag. It's not a joke. It's not fake. It's, it's for real, but it didn't come without sacrifice. It didn't come without giving things up. It came because I chose it to be a number one priority. Therefore, I'm in a different position. You chose to have kids. I chose not to have kids, man, because it was going to yeah. fuck with my life. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that at the end of the day, you and I couldn't be more different, like on every level, <laughs> looks, lifestyle, family style, everything. And yet you and I are two of the more dedicated people I've ever met to living the exact lifestyle they want to live. And our lifestyle is very our lifestyle is very different, but we are committed to it and we've crafted our life around supporting that lifestyle. And I'm gonna tell you something else that's really important for me to tell you, and if Kirk was here, but he'll hear it. One of the things I like about you and Kirk so much is you guys have been a couple of people within the Spartan 
upper echelon pro team level racers who have treated me with respect, who have understood where I come from. Some people write me off. They don't want to take me serious. They don't have that level of respect. And to me, that tells me, here's a couple of guys, they can see through whatever bullshit they think I might be portraying. They can see through his, his extra level of intensity. They can see through something that he might say, like about ladder drills. You can see through that stuff that might offend somebody and get to the core of the person and still accept what they are and look to learn something about them. And, get, and you know what else is interesting? We are all Midwesterners. Mm -hmm. And a few of the people that I put in my scope of close friends, Midwesterners. Now, I don't know entirely if that means something or not, but I can tell you I've traveled this world and I've met a lot of people and I know the difference. And so it's nice to have people like you and Kurt that keep perspective. They're willing to find out what the person's really like. They're willing to hear the person out. They're willing to reserve judgment until they know more. I mean, one of the first real deep conversations you and I had was in Florida at Media Day. We were standing underneath that tent. Alabama. Right? Was that Alabama? I thought that was Florida. Uh, probably both, actually. Okay. But we were talking about training and training philosophies. Yeah. And you were always cool to me. You've been always nice to me. Kirk's always been that way. I mean, there's a couple people in our in our, in our our sport that are like that. And those are the people I want to surround myself with. Those are the people that I want to get to know. I appreciate it. You know, this is this is one of those episodes that that I don't want to to cut the time short on, you know, <laughs> and we haven't. But like it has to come to a close. And I think this yeah. is a good place for it. Fair so, enough. Thank you so much for your time, for being forthcoming. And I hope people get a lot out of this. Yeah, I do too, man. I mean, I just hope people give it a listen with an open mind and just try to look over whatever it is they thought they saw about me and just, you know, kind of like listen to what's being said and take it to heart and, and think deeper beyond just the surface level of like, oh, he's brash, he talks loud, he's this or that, you know, just like, and man, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm sorry it took like five times for it to actually happen. <laughs> that's all right. That's the that's the downside of setting your own schedule is there's always something there. Yeah, but you know what, man? It's worth its price. It's worth the price. It is. Pay. Well, I'll see you in Jacksonville. And when this airs, it'll be two days away. Yeah. Well, I'll see you shortly. See you in a couple days. Mm -hmm.